Dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, come to you this morning. We just are so thankful that we can be in this place. We're thankful um, just for your unfailing love and for your faithfulness through all generations. We just are so, uh, we so acknowledge that during this Easter season. We thank you for our brother Neil, and we thank you for this community. And uh, we just ask you now just to speak Speak through Neil. Speak the words of of you, Jesus. We just want to hear from you, and we just love you, and we serve you, and we give you all the glory. So just cover Neil now uh, with your blood and hide him beyond the cross, and uh, and just bless us now. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks, Brian. Um, If you have any space in the middle of a row that you're in, if you want to just kind of shuffle in a little bit, because I think there are still some people at the door looking for seats. Um, So um, just make that space apparent to people. Um, So um, we are in uh, Matthew's Gospel for the very last time today, although I think we might be dipping in there at Easter. I'm not exactly sure what Rod has up his sleeve. Um, But uh, get yourself a Bible in your hand because you're going to need it. If you don't have a Bible with you, just uh, raise a mitt and uh, someone will uh, bring one to you. But you're definitely going to want a Bible as we navigate through this. So this is the very last message in this long series that we've been uh, engaged in working all the way through Matthew's Gospel. (laughs) Oh, wipe away a tear. Um, Seriously though, if you've... um, been enjoying this journey, I, you know, I really hope that you have. Certainly uh, for us as a teaching team, we've just uh, got a huge amount out of this. I know that Rod and Westy and Brandon and Greg and myself have uh, come away from this with a bunch of things in our own lives changed um, and with a challenge on us to change more. Um, this is a book that's uh, kind of made us wriggle in our seats a bit. I hope that it's been the same uh, for you. Um, and we need to be attentive to that. Um, and try and look back and say, hey, how am I different now for what God's done in me through this book? Today, though, we're going to reach the end, and uh, our text today is going to cover everything that Matthew has to say about the strange events that took place after Jesus' death. Uh, if you just flip in your Bibles to Matthew 27, I'll show you the text that we're, uh, we've got in our hands today. It starts at Matthew 27, verse 57. Uh, just right there at the uh, the beginning of the burial of Jesus, and then it um, uh, runs on all the way to the end of the um, uh, to the end of the chapter to the end of chapter twenty eight. Now, in a moment, I'm going to have a stand uh, and read the central section of this final part of Matthew's gospel, um, and I hope that we'll realise the gravity of it uh, as we do that, um, because what we're about to read is really some of the most uh, important, amazing, significant words I think ever committed to paper. When Matthew wrote, he is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Since those words were spoken, they've shaken the earth. And if the Bible is true in what it tells us, they will shake the heavens for all eternity. But before we get there, I just want us to stand back from this for a moment and think about the way in which Matthew has put this part of the story together. Because I think as we've discovered, as we've gone along Uh, on this journey, uh, the message that Matthew has for us is not just in what he has to say, is it, but in the way that he says it, uh, in the way that he shapes it. If your Bible looks like mine, uh, you're going to find that this section of the text is divided up under five major headings. I wonder whether you see them. Something like this, the burial of Jesus, and then the God at the tomb, and then the resurrection, or Jesus has risen, and then the God's report, and then the Great Commission. Something like that. 
Now, these section headings aren't actually part of the original Bible text. It wasn't as if Matthew just kind of sat down, flipped open his laptop, fired up Microsoft Word, selected kind of heading level one, typed in uh, the burial of Jesus. Um, You know, these headings have been added afterwards uh, by our Bible translators uh, to help us understand how the text breaks up. So they're not part of the original manuscript. They don't always absolutely uh, nail the, uh, the breaks in the flow of the narrative, but in most cases they do. Uh, and in this case, they certainly do. Um, because these section headings help us see that what Matthew is doing in this part of his gospel is really telling two stories at once. Matthew is telling the stories of two different groups of people. And that's why I've got this diagram up for you, and we're going to have this with us through the whole message here. But I want you to see that in the first section, the burial of Jesus is all about Jesus' followers. It tells us what they did with Jesus' body after he died. But then the second section comes along and Matthew cuts away uh, to a different group of people. Under this heading, the guard at the tomb, uh, we switch from Jesus' followers to Jesus' opponents, uh, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And that's where we learn that on the day after uh, Jesus was crucified, they approached the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, uh, for a second time, and they asked him to place a guard at Jesus' tomb. Then in the third section, what I want you to see is that these two stories kind of collide and uh, merge together. So under uh, this heading uh, here, Jesus has risen, we have Jesus' followers in the form of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as Matthew records it. Uh, And Jesus' opponents in the form of these Roman guards at the tomb, both right there in the action, experiencing uh, something amazing, frightening, ultimately life-changing at Jesus' tomb early there on the Sunday morning. But then look what happens. Do you see how Matthew then divides the streams again? (coughs) So in our fourth section under the heading, The Guards Report, we switch back to the story of Jesus' opponents. Matthew gives us a kind of fly-on-the-wall insight into uh, uh, the way that these Jewish leaders reacted to the news that came back from the tomb that morning. And then finally, in the fifth section, we're going to find ourselves under this heading, the Great Commission, back with Jesus' followers, the place where we started. Um, And Matthew was going to show us uh, 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 a narrative of of what happened when they met the risen Jesus in Galilee, and he commissioned them to take the gospel to all nations. So that's what we've got here. Do you see that? Matthew presents us with two different stories uh, and the way that they intersect at the resurrection of Jesus. And through them, I think he wants to present every single one of us who's come out here to church this morning with a choice about how we will respond to this amazing gospel message that he's laid out uh, here over these chapters that we've read uh, through this series. So let's dive in. We're going to go right to the center of the text, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. So let's stand out of a, a recognition of the fact that these are the very words of God. Uh, and let's read this great text together. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There had been a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven, and going to the tomb, had rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And then the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, 
For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. This is God's word. Do take a seat and let's pray together as we begin our text here this morning. Great God in heaven, we call out to you that you would speak into our hearts and our lives through your word. And uh, it seems particularly appropriate to do that as we come to this text because we find ourselves reading about a, a moment, the kind of the supreme moment when you came from heaven to earth and spoke and announced into our broken and sad reality that something amazing and life-changing had happened. And we just pray, God, that in each of our hearts, in each of our lives, that you would quieten us and uh, just uh, free us from distractions, that we might hear the voice of the angel this morning, that we might hear the words of the risen Jesus, uh, that we might grasp the truth that there was a day 2,000 years ago where Jesus emerged from the tomb. And I pray that just as it changed the lives of the people who saw it, I pray that it might change our lives and that you might work that work among us even now, even though we are so far from it spatially and in terms of how long ago it happened. God, you are still the same. Jesus, you are still on the throne. So would you please reign and rule, speak and change and work among us as we study this text together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so now let's look at these two stories in a little bit more detail. We're going to start, if it's okay, with the story of Jesus' opponents. Most of us, I imagine, are fairly familiar with the basic outline of this Easter story, aren't we? We kind of hear it every year. Um, The angel appearing, the stone being rolled away, uh, the empty tomb and so on. But I wonder how many of us have ever asked why it was uh, that Roman guards were posted at the place where Jesus was buried. Maybe that doesn't seem particularly important to us. Uh, But Matthew disagrees, doesn't he? Maybe we've always assumed that this is just what the Romans did when they executed some kind of high-profile political uh, troublemaker. But Matthew wants us to think about this a bit more carefully, I think. Matthew wants us to see that the Romans posted a guard at the tomb of Jesus because of something very specific that Jesus said. Go back to the second section of our text as we have it in our diagram here, starting at chapter 27, verse 62. And we discover that on the Saturday morning after the crucifixion, the chief priests and the Pharisees went back to Pontius Pilate with an additional request. On the Friday, of course, they'd gone to Pilate early in the morning, demanding that Jesus be crucified. 
But on the Saturday, Matthew tells us that they uh, came back to Pilate because they realized they needed his help once again. You see, on the Friday, it had seemed sufficient to them just to eliminate Jesus, hadn't it? You know, in the heat of the moment, it had seemed that if they could just get Jesus out of their hair, if they could just get him off their case, that all their troubles would be over. But on the Saturday, I think in the cool light of day, they realized that they also needed to make sure that they snuffed out Jesus's legacy. And one particular detail was clearly preying on their minds. Look with me at verse 63. And you'll see that Matthew records the actual words that they said to Pilate. Sir, we remember that while that uh, deceiver was still alive, uh, he said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead and this last deception will be worse than the first. So do you see the motivating factor here? The chief priests and the Pharisees were aware of the fact that Jesus had predicted his own death and resurrection. How did they know? Well, it seems that Jesus made no secret of the fact that dying and rising was the goal of his ministry. Actually, we've seen this throughout Matthew. If you look back later to Matthew chapter 16, right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, Uh, Jesus tells his disciples that he's heading to Jerusalem to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and to be killed and on the third day to be raised to life. He says exactly the same thing in chapter 17 after his transfiguration. Uh, He says exactly the same thing in chapter 20. In fact, you may have noticed in Matthew 26 just a couple of weeks ago uh, that uh, Jesus' death and resurrection predictions Uh, formed part of the evidence against him at his trial. Matthew tells us that false witnesses came forward and they twisted and misrepresented uh, what Jesus had said when he said, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And they made it look like he was planning some kind of terrorist plot on the temple in Jerusalem itself. So it seems like uh, this remarkable claim that Jesus made, that he would die and rise again, was common knowledge uh, even before Jesus died. And in our text, the chief priests and the Pharisees seem to have been worried about the implications of that. Of course, it didn't enter their minds that it might actually happen. Look at the words they use. While he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. They were convinced, weren't they, that Jesus was a fraud. They were convinced that they'd done the right thing by opposing him and killing him. They were convinced that they'd rid society of a dangerous lunatic. So they weren't concerned that Jesus might actually rise from the dead unless they acted to stop it. No, they were concerned that Jesus' disciples might try and steal his body and make it look like he had risen uh, so that his predictions might seem to have been fulfilled. And so they asked Pilate to post a guard and Pilate duly did. And that brings us now into the middle section of our text here, where we read about the guards' experiences at the tomb. Now, I don't know what you have in your mind when you think about these Roman guards, uh, because their main role in the story is kind of just to fall down in fright in front of the angel. It's easy to think of them just as a kind of bit weedy and cowardly, isn't it? Um, You know, worn out from a whole night's guard duty. Uh, perhaps even prone to bizarre uh, resurrection hallucinations. Uh, But that's not the picture um, uh, that the people who would have uh, been originally reading these texts would have had conjured up in their mind when they thought about Roman guards, because they knew these guys personally. 
The Roman uh, kind of military uh, uh, presence in Judea was formidable and disciplined. Uh, These soldiers were armed professionals who did this kind of guard duty for a living. Uh, The guards would have been regularly relieved according to the four standard Roman watches of the night. So when these events took place, we've got to assume that these guys are fresh and alert and more than adequately equipped to repel any hastily constructed plans that the disciples might have put together to steal the body of Jesus. But they weren't any match for the visitor who did actually come to the tomb in chapter 28, verse 2, were they? Piecing the chronology together here, it seems the first obvious thing that happened uh, at dawn on that first uh, Easter Sunday was uh, an earthquake. Now remember, this isn't the first earthquake that we've seen in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Back in chapter 27, when Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake too. And many holy people who had died were raised to life. So if we've got a good nose for the story that Matthew was telling us here, we're thinking, hello, earthquakes and resurrections go together. I wonder what's coming here. And earthquakes have some previous in the wider Bible story, don't they? Because from Mount Sinai forwards, we get this consistent picture that when the holy God of all creation comes down and engages with this unholy world, the world just convulses. So as we read this, I think Matthew just wants us to appreciate the immense significance of the events that he's laying out here. What Matthew describes was earth-shaking in every sense of the word. Then look at the next thing that happens when this angel appears and he rolls away the stone in front of the tomb. It's striking actually in the text. You realize the angel's not rolling away the stone to let Jesus out. The angel's just rolling away the stone to show you that he's no longer there. No stone is going to stop this risen Jesus from doing what he's going to do. And picking up the cues from the earthquake here, uh, the description of the angel that Matthew gives us uh, draws on some of the most high-octane apocalyptic language of the whole Bible. Uh, We're told that his appearance was like lightning. That comes straight out of the vision of the end of human history that we have in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, His clothes were white as snow, says Matthew. That's straight out of the vision of God himself in Daniel chapter 7. And in response to this, these formidable, disciplined, professional Roman soldiers are reduced to quivering wrecks. These are the strong, alive guys sent to guard the dead guy, right? But Matthew tells us that they now become like dead guys and the dead guy comes alive. And that's how they seem to have stayed throughout the text, uh, throughout this next part of the narrative, while Jesus' female disciples appear and they speak to the angel and they see that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And it's only after all the action has subsided that they manage to struggle to their feet again and run back to the city to tell their masters what's happened. And that brings us into the fourth section of our story here, starting at chapter 28, verse 11. So just read along with me and listen to this. Some of the guards went into the city and they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And that's the end of the story of Jesus' opponents there, isn't it? But what is it that Matthew wants us to get out of this? Well, I think that there are two things. Number one, I think Matthew wants us to see 
simply that there is very good evidence here in what he records for believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. In fact, this text provides us with one of the best vantage points in the whole New Testament uh, to see it. So we're going to camp here for a little bit. We're going to put on our kind of Sherlock Holmes outfits, get our deerstalker hats on and uh, just dive into this briefly um, to see what it is that Matthew's doing for us here. Think first about this uh, whole idea that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. In verse 15 of our text, Matthew told us that uh, by the time he wrote his gospel, some 50 years after these events took place, this theft story had become the standard Jewish explanation uh, for the resurrection. In fact, it's still the standard Jewish explanation for the resurrection, if you've ever encountered uh, any Jews and talked to them about this stuff. Uh, And that, in fact, is a really telling historical reality. Because, first of all, it confirms beyond doubt, doesn't it, that Jesus actually died. Now, I guess many of us maybe have never even thought to ask that question, did Jesus uh, actually die? It seems kind of obvious, and uh, that's okay. Most serious historians agree. Uh, But it's still a surprisingly popular get-out for people who don't want to come to terms with what the New Testament teaches us about these events, to say that Jesus somehow survived the crucifixion, however improbable and bizarre that seems. You know, if you've read the Da Vinci Code, uh, you'll know that that whole reconstruction begins there. That's the, the basis on which that whole narrative is founded. But what I want you to see is that this theft explanation kind of wrecks that, doesn't it? Because if Jesus didn't really die, what in the world were the Jews doing admitting to something as embarrassing as this? With the theft explanation, they're basically fessing up to being outwitted by a ragtag band of Galilean fishermen with a body snatching plan worked out on the back of an envelope the night after the crucifixion. It doesn't make them look that smart, does it? You know, the golden rule of all political cover-ups is that you never admit to something more embarrassing than the actual truth. So the theft explanation tells us that something odd was definitely going on here, uh, simply by the fact that the Jews used it. The theft explanation also tells us that the tomb was empty, doesn't it? You know, there would have been no need to confess to this theft if the Jewish leaders could have just simply marched down to the tomb and produced the corpse of Jesus. In fact, it's kind of remarkable that they don't seem to have even tried because it wasn't as if Jesus' body was in the best shape after the crucifixion, was it? As Isaiah foresaw, he was marred beyond human likeness. You would think it would have been relatively straightforward to find the corpse of some other criminal about the right height, about the right colouring, and pass it off as the body of Jesus. But the Jews don't seem to have even attempted that. Interesting. It's strange as well, particularly, I think, that the Jews opted for this theft explanation uh, when you would think that there were so many other options that they would have been better equipped to exploit. You know, think about who these uh, uh, chief priests and Pharisees are. They are the Old Testament theological experts of all Judaism. Why didn't they try and uh, disprove the resurrection of Jesus theologically? We already know that the Sadducees and Pharisees disagreed about whether life after death existed, but they would have agreed violently that they weren't looking forward to a crucified and risen Messiah. So if this whole thing really was a body snatch, 
you know, if the disciples really did work it all out on the back of an envelope the night after the crucifixion, you can't help thinking that the Jewish leaders would have simply exposed their theological naivety and demonstrated that the Old Testament predicted no such thing. And yet when they went back to their Old Testaments uh, and held them up to the events that had actually taken place, events that they had unwittingly contributed to making them take place, I bet they got the fright of their lives. And there's much more that we could say. I hope you can see even from this brief look at the evidence that just the existence of this theft explanation actually makes the resurrection more likely rather than less. But we could also look at it carefully and critique it. Were the disciples in a fit state psychologically to mount some kind of uh, theft after Jesus' crucifixion? I really don't think so. Were they even in the same place? Again, that's very doubtful. Is there any evidence that Jesus was the kind of megalomaniac, maybe, who might have pre-planned this? Well, again, I think that's very doubtful. Is there any case history of megalomaniacs choosing to die and then fake their resurrections rather than uh, faking their deaths and remaining alive? That just seems like a completely bizarre choice even from a megalomaniac to make, doesn't it? The important thing I want us to see here then is that just with an easy historical style, Matthew lays some groundwork in in this passage that makes it very difficult to explain away the resurrection of Jesus as a mass hallucination or whatever other alternatives we've heard. The fact that the Jews camped on this theft theory tells us that something strange definitely happened here and we have to get to grips with it. But that isn't the only thing that Matthew wants us to get out of this, I think. Do you remember I said that there were two things Matthew wants us to see in the story of Jesus' opponents? Well, let's get to the, the second one now. Matthew doesn't just tell us the story of Jesus' opponents in order to highlight the evidence for the resurrection. He also tells us the story of Jesus' opponents to show us the great change that took place in their lives uh, Uh, as a result of the resurrection. Let's think about who these opponents really were for a minute here. Matthew introduces them in chapter 27, verse 62, as the chief priests and the Pharisees, the most important leaders and influencers in first century Jewish society. The chief priests, remember, are not just the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, These guys are also the political leaders of Israel. Uh, There was no separation between church and state In Jesus' day, that was a completely alien concept. Uh, Under Roman rule, the priests were in charge of the day-to-day government of the city of Jerusalem, as well as looking after the temple. They were powerful and privileged, and they protected their rights fiercely. Now, the Pharisees, of course, were a little bit different. Uh, They didn't have much in the way of political power at this stage in Jewish history. Uh, But they did have the approval of the people. You see, in the eyes of the Jewish public in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were kind of Robin Hood characters. Uh, They were zealous for God's word, zealous for God's honor. Even the name they bore, Pharisee, means set apart. They weren't afraid to challenge their fellow Jews to greater devotion. Uh, They weren't afraid to challenge the Romans to just get out of their country. And their uncompromising attitude earned them immense respect So think about the power and the prestige and the influence and the learning invested in this group of people who got together to rid the world of Jesus. And then look at what happened to them when the story took this unexpected turn. You see, when the curtain goes up on their story in the second section of our diagram here, 
they were on the offensive, weren't they? They were asserting themselves. They were taking the initiative. They were doing what leaders do. But you see the great change that takes place in their lives as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. By the time the curtain goes down on their story, by the fourth line of our diagram, these guys are on the defensive big time. Suddenly they're in reactive mode, taken by surprise by the events that are unfolding around them. And that shift in momentum only continues when we head into the book of Acts. These guys were heading up at the start of the story, but now suddenly they're heading down. And they've been heading down ever since. And do you see how that change is emphasized in the words that Matthew chooses here? Do you remember the way that the Jewish leaders described Jesus to Pilate back in chapter 27, verse 63? While he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. And the same thing came back at the end of verse 64. If his disciples succeed in stealing the body, they tell Pilate, this deception will be worse than the first. But look what the resurrection of Jesus does to them in the second part of their story. When they hear the guards' report, we're told that the chief priests met with the elders and they devised a plan and they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away we were asleep. So do you see what's happened here? The guys who began this story claiming the moral high ground, condemning Jesus as a deceiver, have become deceivers. And so the resurrection of Jesus has radically changed that trajectory. These natural leaders have been transformed into scared, defensive hypocrites, desperately trying to shore up the edifice of what they've done and resorting to exactly the same tactics that they deem worthy of a death sentence just a couple of days previously. A great change took place in the lives of Jesus' opponents as a result of the resurrection But Matthew wants to see that that was nothing compared to the great change that took place in the lives of his followers. So let's get get to that now, and we're going to work our way back through the story, picking up the details from the followers' perspective. You'll remember from our diagram here uh, that Jesus' followers come into focus in the very first segment of the story, uh, the account of Jesus' burial. And it's striking for all kinds of reasons The first thing I want us to notice in this first part of the story is who isn't in it. You see, all the way through Matthew's gospel, who were Jesus' most constant companions? His disciples, yeah. But now they're completely absent. Not even John is here. If Jesus' opponents began their part of the story riding high, Jesus' followers begin their part of the story riding oh so low, don't they? It couldn't be lower. You can't be any lower than not even to be mentioned. And how did it come to that? Well, the disciples weren't just devastated by grief, were they? Although that was definitely true. They were devastated by consciousness of personal failure. These were the men who had carried Jesus' message out around the towns of Galilee. These were the men who had healed people and driven out evil spirits in his name. These were the men who had hoped to sit on his left and his right in his glory. Do you remember that? These were the men who should have stood by Jesus. And yet these are the men who deserted him at his moment of greatest need. And so the story of Jesus' followers begins by concentrating on this man called Joseph of Arimathea instead. Now this is the first time in Matthew's Gospel we've even heard of Joseph of Arimathea. And there's a reason for that. 
You see, according to Luke's gospel, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the same council that tried Jesus and sentenced him to death. In John's gospel, we learn that he'd become a believer in secret for fear of his colleagues. And Luke tells us that when the council condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea did not approve of their actions. But despite all of that, this is the first moment when he actually comes out of the closet and lets his allegiance to Jesus show. It's kind of tragic, isn't it? It's as if Joseph realises this is the last chance he has to identify himself with Jesus, even though the time to do that usefully has already passed. It's like one of those stories where an estranged relative comes and confesses all their faults and pleads for forgiveness at the graveside of the person that they fell out with many years before. Joseph's actions after Jesus' death say the things he should have said during Jesus' lifetime. You can almost hear him saying, can't you? Look, I blew it. But this is where my heart was. Even though it's too late, I want you to know, Jesus, this is where my heart really was. Now, without making too big a thing of this, I think that there is an application here that might be on target for some of us. You see, Joseph comes into this part of our text thinking it's the end of the road for him and Jesus, doesn't he? But that isn't where his story finishes. Joseph may well have been weighed down by his failure to stand up for Jesus in the past, but as we go along in our Bible story here, we discover that realizing that we are failures isn't so much a bar to acceptance with Jesus as it is almost a qualification. You might be the person who has failed to stand up for Jesus in the past when you should have done. You may, maybe you have been living as a, a kind of secret Christian in the eyes of your work colleagues or maybe even the eyes of your children or your spouse for years. But Joseph of Arimathea sounds the note of amnesty, if that's you. Joseph of Arimathea's story says it isn't too late to come out of the closet even when you've already been in it for far too long. Joseph of Arimathea's story simply asks us if we will stand up and be counted now. Down at the foot of this first part of the story, in chapter 27, verse 61, we also get another interesting insight into this contrast between Jesus' followers and Jesus' opponents, don't we? In the disciples' absence, who is it that sticks with Jesus right to the bitter end? Well, it's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And you see Joseph of Arimathea has been brought uh, low by Jesus' death. By taking Jesus' body and placing it in his own tomb, Joseph is just saying kind of sayonara to his career on the Jewish council. He's heading down now. But Mary Magdalene is already at the bottom of that descent. In Mark's gospel, we learn that Jesus drove seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Jesus had made a way to accept her. But now he was gone. Just imagine how she must have felt facing the prejudice of her society without him, with everyone around her knowing what the history was. So putting it all together, this portrait of Jesus' followers at the start of this final section of Matthew's Gospel is not promising, is it? They enter the story very low. But let's see how things change as uh, we move forward here. When we get into the middle part of the narrative, now line three on our diagram, when the two stories collide... Uh, We see the focus shift from Joseph to the women. 
And as we saw before on the Sunday morning after the crucifixion, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to the place where Jesus was buried, carrying spices that they prepared according to Luke and John's accounts. And when they arrive there, they find themselves looking at a truly incredible scene. Uh, The earthquake that we read about earlier had shaken the ground. Uh, The angel had appeared and rolled back the the stone in front of Jesus' tomb and was sitting on the top of it, kind of like on a field of victory. And the detachment of Roman guards are just kind of cowering in fear before him. And then we get this wonderful, bizarre, ever so gospel scene where the angel opens his mouth and he makes his world-changing, mankind-dethroning, sin-shattering announcement to the women. Do not be afraid, he says, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. Remember, the testimony of these ladies would not even have been considered valid in a Jewish court. But the angel doesn't care, does he? He entrusts them with the most important message ever carried in human history. This detachment of big Roman kind of burly soldiers are lying literally catatonic at the angel's feet. And these two vulnerable women are standing up, taking the orders. But even though it's almost comic, it's also incredibly significant. But do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's being acted out in front of us in this story? Jesus' followers enter this last part of Matthew's gospel as low as they could possibly be. And Jesus' opponents enter riding high. But look what happens to them as a result of the resurrection. Now Jesus' opponents are laid low and Jesus' followers are lifted up, though they can't even believe or understand what's happening to them. And so they hurry off uh, now, afraid, but also filled with joy. In verses 8 to 10 of the section that we read, that transformation just continues. After Mary comes back to the tomb with Peter and John, and they've seen the stone and the grave clothes uh, with their own eyes, it seems that Mary meets Jesus herself. And even though his words to her occupy just a couple of lines in our Bibles here, do you see how pregnant they are with his power to completely change the direction of a broken human life? Who, after all, are the guys who are absent from this whole follower narrative so far? Who are the guys who deserted Jesus, who denied Jesus, who failed to show up even for his burial? The disciples. But now they're mentioned for the first time. In Jesus' words to Mary. And it's not, go tell those losers. Go tell those turncoats. Go tell those cowards. No, Jesus says to Mary, and maybe some of us need to hear this. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Without the disciples doing anything themselves, unbeknownst to them, while they were sleeping, while they were hiding, Jesus' resurrection totally changed their lives. And all of that comes into focus in the last part of our text here. Now we know, um, uh, sorry, now we, um, we all know this final part of Matthew's gospel fairly well here, I think. And many of us, I'm sure, could recite the great commission uh, that we're about to uh, see Jesus give here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples 
of all nations, commanding, sorry, uh, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit uh, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But I want us to hear that the way that Matthew heard it when he stood there. I want us to hear it the way that Jesus meant it. Because these events don't set up uh, like we're reading just about another kind of ho-hum, great literary moment to be quoted. They don't even set up like one of the great historical turning points like Martin Luther King's speech at the Lincoln Memorial or the Gettysburg Address. No, these events set up like they stand at the center of it all, dwarfing everything else in their significance. The angel and the earthquake signaled that, didn't they? The way that uh, that whole uh, incident came together. And the words that Jesus chooses here confirm it. Jesus is announcing the implications of the resurrection, the achievements of the cross. And to anyone who knew the Old Testament well, it would have sounded very familiar. You see, way back in Genesis 12, after Adam and Eve had been expelled from Eden and human history had been swallowed up in self-inflicted misery, God reached out to a man called Abraham and made him a promise that has echoed through history ever since. He said, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise of the kingdom of God, that despite our sin, despite our misplaced confidence that we know best, despite our belief that God has no right to rule us and all the wretched consequences that have flowed out from that. God himself pledged to intervene. God promised Abraham that he was going to redeem his kingdom. He swore that at his own cost, he would buy back his special people to live in his special place so that they could experience the blessing of his presence with them and his rule over them and pour that blessing out to the world. And now Jesus seems to be handing that promise to his disciples. Go, said God to Abraham. Go, says Jesus to his disciples. I will make you into a great nation, said God to Abraham. Go and make disciples of all nations, says God Jesus to his disciples. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, said God to Abraham. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, says Jesus to his disciples. Jesus is sending his disciples out like God sent Abraham out to bring his blessing to the nations. Talk about rehabilitation. Just half a chapter ago, these guys were totally down and totally out. Now they're being entrusted with the greatest promise of the Old Testament. But even that isn't the fundamental echo that I think Jesus wants to catch here. You see, Jesus wants us to see that the resurrection achieves something even more important. When God made his promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, it wasn't just pulling a list of kind of nice to haves out of his ear, was he? It wasn't as if God's being God's special people and living in God's special place and experiencing the blessing of God's presence with them and his rule over them and being a blessing to the rest of creation was an original thought. No, God was pointing Abraham backwards, back to the Garden of Eden. The blessings that God promised to Abraham were the blessings that humanity lost 
when we fell and every human being on the surface of the earth, whether they know it or not, has been desperately yearning to regain them ever since. We were not made for the passing stuff that attempts to satisfy us here. We weren't given the miraculous bodies and minds and abilities that we enjoy as human beings just to medicate our discontent in front of the TV and try and find a way to come to terms with ourselves. Now we were given all these gifts for a purpose, a purpose so profound that even the angels looked on us in wonder when we were first made. We were made in God's image to represent him. We were made to be his ambassadors, his vice regents. We were sent into the world to speak for him and rule in his name. We were given our amazing bodies and minds and abilities to appreciate and then tell out the story of God's goodness and grace to the ends of the earth. In Genesis 1.28, the very first words that God spoke to humanity, the very first sound that the human ear heard was this, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And now, after the resurrection, Jesus marches us through the curtain back into the garden and reissues the same command. Be fruitful and increase in number, said God to Adam. Go and make disciples, says Jesus to his disciples. Fill the earth, said God to Adam. Go and make disciples of all nations, says Jesus to his disciples. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground, said God to Adam. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, says Jesus to his disciples. So do you see how radical this is? Jesus is declaring the end of the fall. And by the power of his death and resurrection, he's recruiting the fall's very worst offenders to be new Adams and new Eves in a new Eden. And the two stories in our text kind of act it out, don't they? Now that the resurrection has broken out in our world, Jesus wants us to see that position and ambition and respect and status mean nothing. They're coming crashing down. Jesus' opponents began this story with all these things. They put themselves in God's place They built their own tower back to heaven and they seemed to be pretty close to the top of it. But the resurrection just stopped them in their tracks. Are we like that? Are we living lives that are all about maintaining our own control and defining our own standards of right and wrong so that we can get ahead? Are we living lives that have a nice kind of dusting of God on the top but inside are actually repelled by the idea of submitting to him? Because the resurrection is bad news for that kind of life. Do you hear that? The resurrection can be bad news as well as good news. When Simeon prophesied over the boy Jesus at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he told Mary that he was destined to call to the falling as well as the rising of many in Israel. Don't let that be you. But the story of Jesus' followers teaches us the beautiful contrast. The resurrection can take the lowest, the weakest, the most disappointed and the most disappointing, the sickest, the least reliable and set them on their feet as ambassadors of the great king 
with a message of redemption to share, not just in the abstract, but from their own experience. The disciples in our story were as good as dead, weren't they? Some of us might be right there with them this morning. But on the morning of the first Easter, the resurrection raised them from the dead. And it can do the same for us right now if we will surrender and admit to God how much we need it. But this is also a message for every day of our Christian lives. Just as we move from death to life by the power of the resurrection when we first put our trust in Christ, every bit of progress we make in our Christian walk from that point forwards is a little death and a little resurrection of its own that's empowered by the same Eden-restoring work of Jesus. So as we sit and reflect here in our seats at the end of this gathering, for those of us who are already Christians, let's think about the present challenges to godliness that God has set in front of us. The challenge to be content, maybe. The challenge to think of others first. The challenge to, put, uh, uh, to trust God with our future. Uh, the challenge to put specific sins to death. The, the challenge to get off our derriers and actually tell people the good news of the gospel. And let's bring it to mind that the resurrection of Jesus still has the power to radically change our trajectory in these things if we submit ourselves to it. Do you believe that? I do. In fact, as I've been preparing this message in this last week, I've seen that uh, God liberating that resurrection power in my own life, again, just in a small way. And so I'm not left just trusting in the truth of all this because it's very hard to find a historical alternative, although that's helpful to know. I'm left trusting it because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is coursing through my veins in a small way and it's pointing me towards the greater resurrection that lies ahead. Let's pray. God in heaven, we call out to you for this transformation in our own lives and in the lives of those that we know. And we pray, Jesus, that your resurrection power might work in us and in the hearts of the people that we're praying for and that you've put in our families and in our workplaces for good. Jesus, we hear the warning here that the resurrection has been kind of sent into the world to divide Lord that if we set ourselves against you the resurrection will do to us what it did to these Roman guards that we will be crushed but if we're already crushed and if we know that we are then it can raise us from the dead and I pray Lord God would you liberate that power in us Lord that we might be what you made us to be originally, that we might actually rise up and, and tell and speak of who you are, that we might use the gifts that you've given us to just share your amazing, redeeming love and kindness with our neighbors and with our friends. Lord, we pray that you would send us out empowered by the fact that we are not dependent on ourselves and all that we can achieve but on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in his great name we pray. Amen.